from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. To all of the children who are worshiping with us today, welcome. We are made better by your presence here among us. If you would like to stay in worship, you are welcome to stay here with the congregation. Or if you want to keep worshiping with godly play, we have some volunteers over here who will take you to go experience God in another way. Welcome, children. Our first scripture reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 15 through 20. Listen for God's word as it comes to us today through this scripture. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 21 through 37. Uh, this is a continuation of the lectionary texts that are set before us that have centered in the Gospel of Matthew since Epiphany Sunday, the first Sunday of January. And we've walked ever so slowly through these uh, first few chapters of Matthew. The last couple of weeks, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, beginning with the Beatitudes. Last week, we talked about salt and light. And we ended that uh, section with Jesus saying, uh, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And that sets up for what we are about to, to read here uh, this morning, beginning in verse 21, because Jesus, in good rabbinical form, is going to do a little riffing on the law. He's going to reflect some about the law, the Torah, and give his own, what I would call, expansive interpretation of what it might mean. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to hell, to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He goes on and says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. He keeps going. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. One more. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open this hard text afresh to us this day so that we be changed, we be different people than those who came into this space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Many of you know the name C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, a great fantasy writer, also a great theologian in his own right, became a Christian after years of atheism and wrote a lot and spoke a lot about his Christian faith. And one of the things uh, he was not shy in revealing was how much he did not care for Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in sort of a pre-Twitter war, before there was such a thing as Twitter, they used to think, use this thing called op-ed in newspapers. Have you heard of this? <laughs> and C.S. Lewis wrote an op-ed about how he did not care too much for the uh, Sermon on the Mount, particularly this section that I just read for you. Uh, to which, in a follow-up op-ed, a Twitter response of the time, uh, a minister who knew Lewis critiqued Lewis to the newspaper and, and said, how could one be a Christian and not care for the words of our Lord? So Lewis tweeted back and said, what I mean when I say that I don't care for the Sermon on the Mount is that I don't like it very much and I don't enjoy it. I suppose no one likes it. I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on their face by a sledgehammer? He concluded, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a person who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. There is no tranquil pleasure in the text that I read for you uh, this morning. And as I was preparing this week, I, I thought about 
all the first-time visitors who would be with us in the sanctuary, who'd be streaming with us online. And I'm quite sure that not a single first-time visitor woke up this morning and said, hey, let's check out First Presbyterian Church today. Because maybe the pastor will talk about murder or hate or anger or adultery or hell or dismemberment or false witness or divorce. Or maybe he'll preach about all of them at the same time. (laughs) That's a church I want to go to. Let's go check that out. Right? Matthew 5, 21 to 37, whether it's your first time here or you've spent a lifetime here, is no tranquil pleasure. There's no easy word in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Retired Methodist uh, bishop and former chaplain at Duke University, Will Willimon, uh, paraphrased what Jesus was saying here when he said, you think I've come to help you weasel out of the law. Forget it. I've come to intensify. I've come to exceed, deepen the frontal assault of the law. Willimon concludes by saying, all our sweet Jesus sentimentality and gushy grace just crumble before these searing commands. Right? Lewis is right. There is no tranquil pleasure in this text. Willimon is correct. Jesus offers searing commands. But why? I think that's the question for us today. Why, Jesus, have you switched from these beautiful beatitudes and this beautiful talk about salt and light and have become really quite harsh, really quite expansive in your interpretation of the law? What is your end game here, Jesus? And we might want to ask as contemporary friends of God and followers of Christ, how are we going to land this plane? I mean, what is the word that comes to us from this particular text that meets us in our own time, in our own situation, in our own place, especially, especially because most of us who are Protestants have been theologically formed with a mindset that positions grace over and against law, which traditionally has wrongfully, I think, elevated the New Testament much higher than the Hebrew Bible, elevating faith over works, and yet Jesus is digging deep into the law. He's talking about the works that mark us. He said he didn't come to abolish it. He said he came to complete it. And this Jesus does exactly what Willimon suggests. In his teaching, he reflects on some of the law and intensifies it. He exceeds what had been required in that time. He's asking for something more than what is expected. Now at this point, I think it's helpful to raise a question, and that is, what in the world did the law, uh, how in the world did the law function, rather, in the time of Jesus, and in, in the time of the Jewish people? How in their imagination, their religious, religious imagination, how did the law uh, shape their community life? What was the law all about? Why did God give Moses a law, the Ten Commandments, and then these 600 plus commandments on top of that? Why the law, God? And, and to respond, I, I want to share a little bit of, a, of an illustration. Our family, the Sundermeyer family, the four of us, uh, we have expectations. Now, I wouldn't call them ordinances or laws. Sometimes they feel like that. But, but we have expectations of how we are going to show up together as a family. We've agreed upon things about what it means for us to be family. 
And, and every family, I think, is, is like this to some degree, right? Think of your own family of origin or whatever constitutes your definition of family today or your community today. All of these systems, right, they all have guidelines and expectations of what it means to be a part of that particular family. There are expectations and guidelines and, and ordinances that we speak about, that we name, that we abide by. And then there's some that we don't name, but are just as clear. We may have never heard them articulated, but we know never to be a transgressor against them. In every family system, in every community system, there are these ordinances, there are these quote-unquote laws that mark us as a family. We follow them. So for example, to be a member in the Sundermeyer home means that there is an expectation that you write thank you notes to everyone who gives you a gift, right? In the Sundermeyer home, uh, to be a member of that home means everyone worships on Sunday morning in a church, no matter the travel sports schedule, sleepovers, SAT prep courses, and there are a lot of those these days, or vacations. That's what it means to be part of our family, part of our household. To be a member of the Sundermeyer home means to be, uh, to be willing to talk about how you're doing mentally, to talk about your mental health, to have open and honest conversations about how life is going. That's one of the marks of what it means to be part of our family. And to be a member of the Sundermeyer home means to be physically active, both formally and informally, with quote-unquote mandatory family walks, organized and legalized by Katie, right? <laughs> See, and here's the thing, right? We believe that we are at our very best as a family when we live into these expectations. We are the best version of ourselves when we meet these expectations, when we live into these marks that make us a family, that make us who we are. Now, if, if we fall short on one of these expectations, it doesn't mean that we're no longer part of the family, of course, right? If the boys or Katie or I miss the mark on something, it doesn't mean that we're out. It doesn't mean that we're loved any less. It doesn't mean that we can no longer claim one another as family members. We also elevate, right, of course, the habits of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we recognize that our existence as a family is a gift from God. I mean, we're not where we are without God's grace. We're not who we are without God's grace. And I think all of this is analogous to how the law functioned in the community of faith during Jesus' time. God chose Israel because God chose Israel. Because God is sovereign and God loved the people of God and chose the people of God and loved the people of the world and through that choice expressed God's great and grand love for the whole of creation. And God didn't choose Israel because God thought, well, these folks will really know how to keep a good law. God did not choose Israel because they had done something heroic. God chose Israel because God is God. And God chose Israel to be God's family. And by choosing Israel, God chose the world to be God's family. This choice was about God. It was about God. And what the law is then, when you think of it in those terms, what the law is, is simply an expression of that which marks the family of God. 
That's what marks the family of God. That's how you know that you're part of the house. That's how you know you're part of that family. And so their obedience to the law marks them as children of God. It's not to earn God's love. God's love has already been poured out. It's to mark them and say, we belong to this people. We belong to this God. In the text from Deuteronomy, it's one of Moses' last speeches, and he, and he comes to the precipice of the promised land. And he's, he's basically saying there's two ways to go now as, as you're about to enter into the promised land. You can choose life. You can choose life, which is to choose the way of God, to choose that which marks us as a family of God, that which brings the very best out of us when we're living in the fullness of life, to choose that. Or you could choose the opposite, which brings destruction. And I think what Jesus is doing, I really think this, I think this is part two of Moses' sermon that he gave before the Israelites entered into the promised land. Because I think what Jesus is doing, I think he's simply talking about the family. I think he's talking about us. Talking about people who dare to claim their inheritance as children of God and saying, this is what marks us as a family. This is what we'll look like when we're at our very best. And I know he speaks kind of harshly. He speaks with some measure of judgment. He speaks with urgency. And friends, every time you see Jesus speak with urgency, every time you hear him speak with urgency and speak with judgment, pay attention because he's about some serious work. The urgency comes because he knows this is a matter of life or death. He knows this is a matter of what it means to be the family of God and what it does not mean. And so he speaks with this urgency because he knows only with these marks are we really living into what it means to be part of God's family. And so as I close, let me, let me just put it this way. And maybe this gives a different, uh, a different way of looking at this text and these harsh words that he brings, right? He's basically saying, right, in the first part, the best comes not just when we don't murder each other. Right? The best comes not when we just don't murder each other. The best will come when we stop hating each other. When we stop dividing each other, when we stop seeking revenge, the best will come when we pursue reconciliation and see that the highest expression of religious obligation, even more important than maintaining the proper standards of worship, says Jesus, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile with your brother or your sister. He says the best comes not just when we don't commit adultery. The best will come when we stop objectifying others' bodies and treating them as if they were created for the pleasure of another person instead of created as the temple of the Holy Spirit made in the image of God. The best will come when we elevate one another's bodies and our own as sacred and holy creations of God. When it comes to his word about divorce, I think it's a little preface that needs to be said here. Uh, note that in his message about divorce and his message about adultery, he's only speaking to men did you notice that? And in the time of Jesus, the woman was essentially property. And so with Jesus' words here, what they do is they protect the vulnerable person in this equation as he elevates the status of women. So this saying is not just about marriage and divorce. It's also about how somebody wields the power that they have. The best comes when we don't cast people aside just because we can. Just because we can issue a certificate of divorce. Just because you have power over someone. 
The best comes when we don't cast people aside just because we can or because we have the power or the authority to do so. The best comes when we don't exercise our power to to deem people as non-essential. And finally, he says the best comes not just when we tell the truth. It's so important in these days, not just when we tell the truth, but the best comes when we build a community of trust where our yes really means yes and our no really means no. So that when we say yes, all people are welcome, we really mean it. When we say yes, your voice and your gifts matter in this community, we mean it. When we say yes, your spiritual and mental and physical health matter to God and they matter to us, we really mean it. When we say yes, you're a child of the living God, we really mean it. See, what Jesus is talking about here is just family business. He's just talking about what it looks like and what it feels like and what it sounds like when you're part of this house, when you're part of the church, and when you claim your inheritance as a child of God. So in the words of Moses, may we choose life. May we continue to choose the way of God, which I think also means choosing each other. And may we be the family that God has called us to be. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand in body or in spirit as we affirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. What do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. In this time, as our ushers come forward, may we rededicate our lives as disciples to Christ and return to God's service our tithes and offerings.